Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you for downloading. My name is Renee Manderville, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Center, or IOWC, at McGill University. I am joined by Drs. Archisman Chowdhury and Philip Gooding, both postdoctoral fellows at the IOWC. Hi, Rennie. Thank you for having me here. And hi, both of you. Thank you for having me here, too. You'll hear more from them later on in this podcast. Today, we are also lucky to have Akash Ondaatje join us as a guest host for this podcast. Akash is a recently graduated master's candidate from the Queen's University Department of History, whose research contributes to the historiographic tradition that has endeavored to illustrate the centrality of animals to the comprehension, critique, and crafting of human societies. Um, of which he will actually discuss in our um, in his upcoming podcast with the IOWC. So, hi Akash, how are you doing today? I'm very well, Renee. Thank you for having me. So, our guest speaker today is Professor Radhika Govindrajan, an associate professor of anthropology and international studies at the University of Washington. Professor Govindrajan earned her PhD at Yale University in 2013 and has since become involved in research which crosses the fields of multi-species ethnography, environmental anthropology, the anthropology of religion, South Asian studies, and political anthropology. Predominantly, she has been motivated in her research to understand how human relationships with non-humans in South Asia influence the cultural, political, and social relevance of their surrounding environments. So today, she will begin approaching this research for us by discussing her recent book publication entitled Animal Intimacies, Interspecies Relatedness in India's Central Himalayas, published by Chicago University Press in 2018. Animal Intimacies was awarded the 2017 American Institute of Indian Studies Edward Cameron DeMock Prize in Indian Humanities, as well as the 2019 Gregory Bateson Prize by the Society for Cultural Anthropology. The book takes an ethnographic approach to multi-species relatedness in the central Himalayan state of Uttarakhand, India, exploring the variety of symbolic, material, and effective relationships that villagers in the central Himalayas have with an array of non-human species. So, Professor Govindrajan, we are so lucky and thankful to have you with us today, and we are so excited to learn more from you about interspecies relatedness, um, as well as more about how your research has influenced the historiography in the field in such a unique and fascinating way. Thank you so much, Renee. Thank you for having me, and thank you to all of you for reading and engaging with the book. Um, so first of all, do you mind just briefly explaining your book, or rather the inspirations for the book to our listeners? Um, introducing these knots of connections that promote relatedness between human and non-human animals, as well as the specificities of India's central Himalayan region, uh, which stimulated your interest in researching and uncovering this unique and anthropological, anthropological discussion. Uh, further, in your introductory chapter, you shared a quote that states, to eat from the same soil, to drink from the same rivers, and to worship the same gods, in other words, is to be related the substance of kinship is acquired over time through exchanges and entanglements. Um, so I thought this quote was really beautiful and I was just wondering if you could delve more deeply into the meaning of this quote and its explanation of relatedness in uh, Kumaon. Thank you, Renee. My book, Animal Intimacies, is an ethnographic exploration of people's relationships with non-human animals in India's central Himalayan state of Uttarakhand. 
In the book, I'm interested in asking what it means to live a life that is knotted with other lives for better or worse, and how these knots of connection produce a deeply felt sense of relatedness between humans and animals in this region. Um, I think of relatedness as uh, the relational unfolding of life. To be related to another is to recognize that one is not formed as a self in isolation, but through the doing of relationships with other entities. And my emphasis on the doing of relatedness here is drawn from David Schneider, who suggested that uh, kinship was something that gained acquired meaning through the doing of relationships. Um, and he really sort of turned the attention to a processual theory of kinship. Um, so to be related to another is to recognize that one's past, presence, and futures are gathered up in their past, presence, and futures. I think of relatedness as involving not just um, relationships of mutuality, care, and love, but also relationships of hostility, of indifference, of fear. Um, and I'm drawing this emphasis on the negative dimensions of relatedness, if we can call it that, from Janet Carsten, who pointed out that um, theorists of kinship often tend to imbue kinship with this fuzzy quality, that it, it always has these positive valences. And that, that understanding doesn't really leave room to explore the violence of kinship and how it is forged through relationships of violence. And I'm heavily influenced by Karsten's work. I, of course, borrowed the term relatedness from her, which she used to um, speak about indigenous ways of enacting kinship. Um, and so for me, this kinship is something that is historically situated. It's not uh, something that is preordained. It's something that is made and done through everyday interactions between humans and animals. Um, I'm, I study uh, relatedness as it emerges in animal sacrifice, in cow protection, in people's conflicts with translocated monkeys that they claim have been dropped off in the mountains from uh, plain cities. I think about relatedness um, through conservation practices and also through um, a genre of stories about women who have sex with bears. And so those are the chapters of the book and I trace how relatedness emerges differentially across these different domains. I think of relatedness as shaped at the juncture of multiple processes. So one uh, important terrain of relatedness is in the forms of care labor that women enact for the animals they raise. So chapters one and two, and also the chapter on the bear, um, think about how uh, the care labor that is performed by rural women and the, the systems of labor here are extremely gendered, right? These are gendered arrangements of labor in which women are you know, almost entirely responsible for the bulk of agrarian labor. And this kind of arduous daily labor, I suggest, is one of the most important grounds of connection between human and non-human animals. Um, and I examine how that gives both sacrifice meaning and also then uh, counteracts the politics of the Hindu right around cow protection, which I'll talk about in just a little while. Um, but I'm also interested in thinking about how certain colonial histories of conservation shape this relatedness. So one of the chapters in the book examines how uh, colonial discourses of conservation uh, entangled people's lives with non-human animals such that the welfare of human lives was opposed to the welfare of the lives of wild animals. And this is a, a rhetoric that really shapes post-colonial conservation in India as well. And this is actually how I became interested in this topic, which was one of your questions. I um, trained as a historian before getting my PhD in anthropology. 
and my master's thesis and my MPhil uh, projects were focused on understanding colonial conservation in this same region in what was then uh, the United Provinces. And I was interested in thinking about how uh, colonial discourses of conservation oppose the value of animal life to um, the value of human life in ways that have left these really enduring legacies for post-colonial conservation in India. So even today, there is often the sense that human and animal uh, lives cannot be entangled, that they must be disentangled if wild animals are to thrive. And this has uh, led to the expulsion of people from national parks, a really strong sense that people constitute a threat to wildlife. And those discourses shape the lives of people in Uttarakhand in really significant ways even today. So my chapter on wild boar conservation thinks about how people invoke this colonial history as having left them in a position where they cannot make claims to their own life without being read as threatening animal lives. Um, so I'm also thinking about those forms of history and how they shape relatedness. I also think about um, relatedness as uh, shaped by the exchange of substances, which is something that you asked about in your question. Um, and one way of thinking about this is through a long tradition of scholarship that has argued that personhood in South Asia is transactional. And I'm thinking of the work of the ethnosociologist McKim Marriott, who suggested that personhood in South Asia was always kind of open and fluid, and that people were formed as selves in through their exchanges and their transactions with a range of other entities. Um, and this has been extended to non-human entities as well. So the soil that you grow your food in, for instance, um, what, what animals you consume, um, who, which costs you exchange food with. And I think that there has been a really robust critique also of some of this work in that it imagines that these forms of personhood are stable. Um, and Sarah Lamb notes that this emphasis on the openness and fluidity of personhood in South Asia actually doesn't account for the ways in which people in South Asia have a very strong sense of themselves as individuals who are closed off to other kinds of entities. So there is a little bit of a, an Orientalism, if you will, in the opposition of Western personhood to South Asian personhood. So I want to be careful about suggesting or not suggesting that my argument about shared substances is uh, directly drawn from McKim Marriott and scholars like that. Uh, while I am certainly shaped by their notions of transactionalism, I think of the shared substance much more in the sense that Karsten invokes when she talks about how these material relationships between people and these everyday exchanges between them are foundational to that kinship. So I'm thinking about those kinds of everyday exchanges as being um, the substance of kinship. And the quote that you um, asked me to unpack, I think also speaks to the ways in which residence in a sacred geography becomes really important to this shared sense of kinship. So one of the things I write about in a chapter on sacrifice is how a family, a migrant family of Pahadis uh, who went to Delhi tried to perform a sacrifice and the goat that they brought to sacrifice refused to shake. There's a process of consent where goats will shake their consent to being sacrificed. And this goat refused to shake even after they kept sprinkling a mixture of rice and water on uh, his back. And then someone said to them, well, you've brought this goat from the plains. Of course, this goat from the plains doesn't really understand the demands that our mountain deities make of us. You need a mountain goat who understands this delicate balance between humans, animals, and deities in the mountains. And I think that speaks to the ways in which 
the shared substance of living in the mountains, of consuming its waters, of living in that same soil, of being subject to the same deities, is really crucial to the relatedness between humans and animals in this region. Um, I also want to come back to the question of violence, and I'll talk about this a little bit in uh, my response to um, um, the question about cow protection. But I also want to note that kinship is, is something that we have to think about more kind of um, analytically, because there is a tendency in some multi-species ethnography to glorify human kinship with non-humans as the start of a better world, right? That there is the possibility, if we make kin with other beings, of moving past our forms of anthropomorphism, our humanistic violence. And I'm wary of making those suggestions, particularly because I work in India, where um, the cow politics of the Hindu right, for example, is rooted in a kind of kinship that um, excludes other beings from the family of kin, right? So the, the idea, for instance, that Christians and Muslims and Adivasis cannot be kin because they cannot love the cow enough and they do not feel kinship with the cow. So there is very much this kind of violence to kinship and an imposition of kinship as well in this region that I write about in the chapter on cows and think about how uh, people on the ground are pushing back against these forms. Um, and the last thing I'll say about the book is that I'm in really invested in thinking about animals as situated actors. So I don't want to think about animals as symbols through which humans navigate questions of politics and ethics. I'm interested in thinking about how relationships between individual animals and individual humans actually shape these larger questions uh, that the book engages. And I think about animals as ethnographic actors, which um, is a really key part of the book. And I'm happy to talk more about that later. Well, thank you so much, Professor Govindrajan. That was a very interesting explanation um, and a very interesting introduction. So um, I'm gonna pass questioning over to Archisman. So Archisman, do you have any questions? Um, yes, thank you, Reni. And thank you, Professor Govindrajan. Um, throughout your book, you often cite Karsten. And at one point you lay out her arguments that the concept of relatedness sometimes obfuscates more negative aspects of human and non-human animal relatedness by painting them with a positive brush. Whereas in reality, as Karsten argues, kinship is shaped by and enables differentiation, hierarchy, exclusion, and abuse as well. And while involving proximity, solidarity, and friendship, kinship also involves hatreds, aversions, and not caring, as explored by Laura Berland's research. I was curious if you could uh, explore these complexities and ambiguities of relatedness with regards to the sacrifice or, or puja of goats, as you have just discussed. Uh, for instance, in your chapter, you uh, entitled The Goat Who Died for Family Sacrificial ethics and kinship. What did you notice while you were exposed to this very intimate ceremony? And how did it relate to your subject of kinship and rationality? Thank you. Thank you, Archisman. Yeah, I was uh, uh, trying to get at some of this in the earlier response and I can build on that now. I think what I find useful about Karsten's notion of kinship is that it also gets away from what she calls the more fuzzy discussions of kinship, right? The idea that kinship is uh, an unalloyed good 
in some sense. And I think that's a really important point to make because some of the work on multi-species anthropology has tended to think about kin making as a, as a positive force uh, for mediating violence. And the idea being, you know, Donna Haraway is one example of this and she often says, make kin, not babies. Um, and that multi-species kinship is a way of getting out of uh, certain kinds of humanism, um, certain forms of anthropomorphism. And I, while I appreciate that, I'm also more skeptical of the idea that kin making is always uh, a positive force in this way. And what, and I think that's very obvious when you look at a place like India, where the politics of the Hindu right wing, for instance, are heavily invested in kin making with certain entities like the cow. And so you, and that kin making then becomes the basis of violence against others who cannot be kin with the cow. Um, and this is, this includes a capacious category, includes Muslims and Dalits and Christians and Adivasis and other groups that the Hindu right wing identifies as threats to the cow. So I think we have to be really attentive to the violence that can often be at the heart of kinship. And Janet Karsten's reminder of that is something that I find really powerful. Having said that, I think the violence can look different and there are different kinds of violence. And one of the points that I make in the book is that some forms of violence might have more ethical potential than others. And sacrifice is a really good example of that. So um, when I started field work, animal sacrifice was becoming a very contentious subject. And there were several court cases that had been filed against the practice in the Uttarakhand High Court by animal rights activists, but also by uh, Hindu social organizations on the grounds that the practice was barbaric, that it was um, not required within Hinduism. So there were all kinds of interesting grounds on in which the practice was being imposed. But I found that far from being the kind of barbaric reveling in violence uh, Kind, kind of people that animal rights activists were talking about. Pahadis were actually thinking about the ethical dimensions of sacrifice and thinking very hard about their own implications in those kinds of violence. And what I, uh, what I argue in that chapter on sacrifice is that that violence of sacrifice is made real and is made possible because precisely because um, women who raise goats feel a deep sense of kinship with them. And that the logic of sacrifice demands that you sacrifice something that is dear to you, right? You wouldn't sacrifice something to the, to the gods that you don't care about. This is part of the logic of sacrifice. It's a sacrifice because you lose something. And so beginning from that moment, I ask, why is it that goats are a meaningful sacrifice? Why are goats accepted by the goddesses and gods in this region? And uh, the origin story of sacrifice goes uh, something like this, that you know, at some point there was human sacrifice and then uh, one woman who had only one son, because it was only the sons who were sacrificed. One woman who had only one son went to the goddess and said, please spare my son and I will give you something that is dear to me. And that was an animal. And so some scholars have argued and many people in uh, Kumau argue that that sacrificial substitution allows for humans to be off the hook. And many people who are critical of the practice suggest that this is somewhat hypocritical. You're not willing to sacrifice your own children, so you sacrifice animals instead. And I begin from that conundrum and ask why it is that goats become a meaningful sacrifice. And I suggest that it was precisely because of these kinship bonds that emerged from raising animals that goats became a meaningful substitute for human children. And I'm wary of suggesting that this um, emerged from some kind of natural and spontaneous love that women felt for animals, right? The kind of eco-feminist idea that women are somehow more attuned to nature. 
but I suggest that this was actually grounded in practices of care labor, in gendered practices of care labor that were made necessary by rural economies in which the bulk of agrarian farm labor is performed by women. Um, and so one of the, the arguments that I'm trying to work wrestle with is what do we make of that violence and what are people making of their implications in that violence? And these were very moving moments uh, when, when animals were sacrificed. There were, um, there would often be people who were weeping as their animals were sacrificed, women mostly. And they would talk about the loss they felt, the guilt they felt at their implication in these practices. And I want to take that seriously and not diminish it as a performance as some people do. Um, activists in particular who argue that this is hypocritical. And I argue that, that their implication in that violence opens up the possibility for ethics because those are moments of rupture in the moment, right? There are moments of doubt. There are moments of intense mourning. And that grief, that mourning, that doubt, um, the skepticism become ethical openings. So I suggest that in that sense, violence can be productive of a particular kind of ethical position. And to do that, I go through um, several things that uh, women said to me. One, one moment stood out to me in particular. There was a young woman who um, once asked me to accompany her to a temple and she was performing. We went to the temple of the livestock deity and usually people went there only if they had a calf in the family and they were offering milk. But she, they didn't have, you know, their cow had not given birth. So I was surprised that we were going up there and she performed this little ritual where she lit a lamp and she offered some flowers. And, and she, um, when we were walking back, she said that she had had a dream about this one goat that her family had raised and then sacrificed and that she was very close to this goat. She would take him to a spot near the river, which was always sort of... Um, had rhododendrons in February and he used to love to eat rhododendron flowers. So she would spend extra time there. She had this very intimate relationship with him that had come from actually spending hours raising him and doing that labor for him. And she felt that the dream had been um, a call from him to atone for what happened. And so she wanted to perform this ritual. And I suggest that these moments are not meaningless, that they are not, um, that they actually contain within them the possibility of thinking about what it means to live ethically in relation to one another. And that this violence is not something that people engage in lightheartedly or without any remorse, but it is something that they think about. And in a sense, I contrast that at the end to the violence of the Hindu right, right? There's a very kind of, there's a pure love that the Hindu right claims to feel for cows, for instance. And very often they'll argue that it is the intensity of that love and the purity of that love that drives them to be violent towards others who cannot feel that love for the cow. And I want to contrast those two forms of violence and think, and those two forms of love that are at the heart of that violence and think about what distinguishes them from one another. Because I think you could, some people have argued that there's very little uh, to be gained for the animal in either of these situations, right? Women might claim to feel love for an animal, but ultimately it dies. Um, but I want to suggest that there is a way in which the violence of sacrifice, precisely because it's rooted in these material relationships of labor, um, opens up the possibility for people to question themselves, for, the, for it to interrupt the sovereignty of the self, the purity of the self, and for them to imagine a way to be ethical in a world that is impure and that is marked by violence. And so for me, thinking about both the violence of kinship, but also the possibilities that some forms of violent relatedness might contain within, the, or contain within them the seeds for another world 
is how I'm trying to grapple with that question of violence. Thank you, Professor Govindrajan. I think that concludes my questions. Uh, I will now pass on the questioning to Philip. Thank you, Archisman. And thank you, Professor Govindrajan, uh, for that discussion. I'm going to move discussion on now for, away from goats and cows and towards monkeys. Um, and through monkeys, you discuss um, contemporary politics of belonging. Um, through consideration of urban monkeys, also known as outsider or Abahawal monkeys, with local Bahari monkeys, or monkeys of the mountain. To provide a little bit of context for our listeners, urban monkeys from Delhi and other large cities around India had been essentially dumped into the Himalayan region in the province of Uttarakhand, wreaking havoc with their monkey-like tendencies. But I'm wondering, by comparing the general view culture references and semantics that depict native Bihari monkeys versus outsider monkeys, there are obvious similarities with xenophobic attitudes that are extended towards unwanted people entering regions, often immigrants or refugees. Um, is this too a deepening of kinship or relatedness as it transposes human characteristics or archetypes of demonization and vindictiveness onto non-human species? And I suppose further, um, does the discrepancies between considering both local and outsider monkeys lend to re-emphasizing the kinship and relatedness that exists between local communities and Kromoan and their local Pahari monkeys, whose similar monkey tendencies are instead referred to as cheeky and harmlessly playful and even elevated by being compared to Hindu gods? Thank you, Philip. That's a really important question. And I think you um, really get at the, the violence of relatedness by asking this question. And it was precisely, um, this idea that relatedness can actually create its own violences and that kinship uh, with local monkeys can then mean excluding those who are not part of the kin family that I was trying to get at in this chapter. And I think you're right that the politics of victimhood and the politics of injury is something that is a huge part of xenophobic moments world, uh, movements worldwide. And um, I refer to the work of Matei Kandea and uh, Laura Jeffries in the book who note that the politics of victimhood is really ambiguous, right? It allows for certain kinds of claims to be made, but those claims are based on uh, certain kinds of exclusion. And that was something that I wanted to think about in this chapter. Uh, what, how does that actually deepen certain notions of insider-outsiderness? And how do those anxieties actually then fuel certain kinds of right-wing politics? And I think, you know, that question scaled up is something I've been thinking about a lot recently because um, once again, the Hindu right-wing uses discourses of Hindu indigeneity in India to fuel its politics of exclusion, right? To suggest that Hindus are the indigenous people of India and anyone else uh, is foreign to the land and that their presence in the land is a kind of injury um, and that Hindus are victims in that sense. So I think there's a real danger to the ways in which those discourses are used. But I think that one of the things I was also wanting to explore in this chapter is how do we think more specifically about the certain about the politics uh, that is being played out through these discourses? And I think the, the difference in this case is that much of this critique was being directed at the state and at elite outsiders. So uh, I write about how there was this kind of burgeoning land market in the Himalayas. It wasn't by any means a land grab. I think people were very keen to sell their land because there's large scale agrarian abandonment in the region for a variety of reasons. Um, one, you know, there's very little kind of support 
for agriculture from the state. So um, that's one part of it. And the, this is a really difficult terrain to uh, cultivate in. And finally, there's also a kind of distaste for agrarian labor, right? Thanks to certain modernizing discourses. And I also want to point out that, you know, there is a tendency, I think, to romanticize agrarian labor and it's really, really hard work and it's very gendered. So I think many people legitimately did not want to do that for themselves or did not want that for their children. Um, so because of that, you saw the very kind of large scale abandonment of cultivation and the freeing up of farmland that people then wanted to sell because it was a way to actually make money from that land. Um, but one of the challenges was in the absence of a kind of infrastructure of employment of social services, that money would very quickly disappear, leaving people then without land and uh, without any means of getting ahead. And so I think there was a real critique, both a real fear about what it would mean to live in a landscape of abandonment by the state. And much of this also coincided with a critique of the new state. So when the new state was formed in 2000, part of the reason uh, that undergirded the state was the idea that it would serve the interests of mountain people. Um, and there was, I think, in the years, in the decades following the creation of the state, a real disillusionment with that ideal and the sense that uh, very little development had actually taken place in the mountains. And so this, the, that combined with the land market that initially held out so much hope, but people soon realized that that was not the panacea that they had imagined, also fueled this critique, particularly of a state that was uh, completely indifferent or at worst hostile to the interests of its populace. And so there was a way in which um, this critique, even though it trafficked in notions of insider and outsider, also was trying to call the state to account. Um, and the other thing that I found interesting and important to say was that these categories were also muddled in these everyday relationships. And this comes back to a larger interest of the book, which is to think about how certain kinds of discourses of what is human, what is animal, who is kin, who is not, actually get formed and modeled through everyday relationships between individual humans and individual animals. So one of the, the things I end, one of the stories that I end the chapter with is about um, this older man who would spend most of his day trying to fend monkeys off from his orchard. And their, their, their orchard had been completely decimated by this group of monkeys that they were certain had come from elsewhere, from Bahar. And you know, many people said that this troop had been dropped off from Delhi, that they had talked to a truck driver who knew the truck driver who had dropped them off. Everyone was certain that they didn't have these kinds of monkeys there before, and they knew they were outsiders because of their habits. They would, uh, as I describe in the book, eat Lay's chips, and they wanted Maggie, and they would stride into people's homes and take their food and uh, would, would behave in ways that people had never really uh, encountered before. And so it, for them, it was very clear that these were city monkeys. And this elderly gentleman then had, to, had taken on the task of basically driving these monkeys out from his orchard. And he spent most of his day railing about them and talking about how, you know, these were goons and thieves and they were just like city people who descended on the mountains and had no kind of consideration for local forms and, uh, and local practices and so on. And then one day when we were sitting together, he, uh, this one monkey crept up to him and I was waiting for him to pick up his stick and swing it at the monkey, which is usually what he did. And instead he picked up a fallen pear and handed it to her. And I was 
shocked and said, you know, I was teasing him and I said, what is this? Have you developed a soft spot for the outsider monkeys? And he said, no, no, this one is different from the rest. She's on her own. Um, and she doesn't, she's driven out by the other monkeys and they don't, uh, you know, they don't accept her as part of their family. So, and I'm the one who, who feeds her and cares for her. And I think those moments of opening are also important to think about the ways in which these seemingly um, uh, irreproachable discourses and uh, are navigated on the ground and also called into question. And so to me, again, that becomes a way to think through what work these discourses are doing, but also the moments of rupture and the possibility for transformation within them. Wonderful. Thank you very much for answering that, Professor Govindrajan. Um, I'm going to now pass over to Akash for a question as well. Thank you, Philip. Um, and thank you, Professor Govindrajan. Um, I wish to firstly just note how much I enjoyed reading animal intimacies. And um, as a student of animal history and culture, as well as being quite familiar with North India, uh, it, was, it was a pleasure to explore so many of these human-animal connections. Um, so the question I had in mind uh, pertains to chapter three, titled The Cow Herself Has Changed. And within this chapter, there's some discussion of how the sanctity of the cow came to be and how contemporary attitudes make various notable distinctions based upon the type of bovine, uh, namely Jersey and Bahari. Um, could you elaborate on Peter Vanderveer's uh, analysis of, of, of rituals and um, perhaps discuss other channels by which this sanctity was made real and um, and how it, and if the uh, image and significance of the cow was perhaps communicated to children um, through stories and fables and pujas and um, and then sorry just as a secondary question I wondered uh, to what degree this animal sanctity within religious education uh, is unique to Hinduism and if indeed it appears among other religious communities in India be they Christian or, or Christian or Muslim or other um, for instance, are there allegorical and didactic images of Krishna as a cowherd in any way comparable to uh, Christian use of sheep uh, as a metaphor? Thank you. Thank you, Akash. Um, I can give you a little bit of background uh, on the question of the distinction between Jersey and Bahari cows before I address your exact question. Um, so. One of the things I write about in the chapter on cows is how the Hindu nationalist project of cow protection was frustrated on the ground by the fact that not all cows were the same for the people who raised them. Um, so Uttarakhand had one of the earliest laws criminalizing cow slaughter and banning the transportation of cattle across state lines. Um, but in the years following the ban, which was passed in 2007, there was a clear sense of frustration with the fact that people were still abandoning cows or that cows were being smuggled quote unquote, across state lines. Um, and I open with that conundrum and the, and the difficulties that posed for Hindu nationalist leaders who were trying to understand why it was that the largely Hindu population of the hills was not committed to this project of cow protection. And what's important is it was a largely upper caste population and upper castes are the traditional base of Hindu nationalism. So this was a particular cause of concern for uh, some of the ideologues of the Hindu right trying to understand why it is that people were not committed. And I suggest that that was precisely because the materiality of the cow mattered. And so while people were uh, much more sort of ready to regard mountain cows as somehow sacred, they saw the Jersey cow as less sacred, as a cow that was a business cow. And I argue that that 
understanding of the Jersey as a kind of business cow was tied to uh, state development projects that have really tried to uh, imagine rural development as being driven by dairy production. So you have this whole infrastructure of um, of bovine reproduction that's been set up in the hills and much of the semen that's distributed through artificial insemination centers is Jersey semen because it, Jersey is a sort of, um, is a smaller cow, it's uh, adapted to being in the mountains, but also provides more milk than indigenous breeds. And um, the one of the questions that I take up is how this distinction is also different from the distinction that some ideologues of the Hindu right make between indigenous cows and foreign cows. And so for members of the Hindu right, foreign cows are uh, considered criminal, quote unquote, um, incapable of actually being ritually powerful. And there's a huge push in Hindu nationalist um, cow protection movements to try and emphasize the sanctity of indigenous cows and to keep indigenous cows and to make sure that uh, the state protects indigenous cows. And they consider uh, foreign cows as something that should be, as beings that should be sort of banished from India. And I think that was the key point of difference that I was trying to trace in the chapter as well. That while there was this kind of material difference between Jersey cows and mountain cows for people, that didn't mean that they loved the Jersey cow any less, right? That they were still involved in caring for these animals and had intimate relationships with these animals, but just did not consider them as ritually significant. And one of the, the ways in which I take that up, that question up and try and think through that is through Peter van der Veer's work, who I think is one of the few people to provide a really kind of material answer to why the cow is considered significant. And he suggests that, you know, there so much of the literature says cows are sacred to Hindus. Uh, and that becomes a kind of self-evident fact. And the idea is that Hindus are somehow naturally drawn to the symbol of the cow, that it, it has this kind of um, immediate efficacy for them. And there have been several scholars who've critiqued that idea itself as somewhat Orientalist. Um, that there is a sense that uh, these are natural symbols that don't require any work to become meaningful. And I think Van der Veer actually points us to the fact that these symbols need to become meaningful through certain practices. And what I found really useful about Van der Veer, I don't know that he would call himself a materialist, but he points to the importance of actual rituals that communicate the cosmological significance of the cow in these material forms. And so I think through in that chapter what those rituals were. And again, material becomes really important. So people would talk about how the, the dung of Jersey cows was much thinner than the kind of uh, perfectly rounded pat of dung from mountain cows, right? That was one kind of material difference. And they said, well, how can you use this really watery dung in a ritual? for instance. So this is clearly not a cow that is designed for rituals because you can't really use these uh, this watery dung in a fire, for instance, as you would a cow poap. Um, they would talk about the difference in the color and the smell of the cow urine that was also used sometimes in these purifying rituals. So for instance, if um, a woman was menstruating, um, families would often sprinkle cow urine on her before she was allowed to enter um, the space of the household, right? So it's used in these kinds of uh, pat Brahminical, patriarchal, and uh, caste rituals in really important ways. And But the emphasis was on the difference in matter. They would also point to the difference in personality of the cows. Um, they would talk about um, how Jersey cows would sort of let anybody come up and touch them. And Pahadi cows, mountain cows, actually had a much more kind of robust personality and were more guarded about who could approach them. And 
those differences, I argue, become really key to thinking about which cow is more ritually significant and which cow is more significant for business. Once again, there was a kind of openness. You know, some people would say, well, yeah, these are Jersey cows, but they've been here. This is, you know, the fourth generation I've had. So she's really kind of like a mountain cow now. So there was also a way in which their understanding of breed, to come back to Renee's first question, was around substance. At what point do you become a mountain cow? If you've had four generations of imbibing mountain substances, does that make you a mountain cow, even though your breed is not that of a mountain cow. So there was all kinds of openness in how these categories were understood on the ground. And importantly, as I suggest, there was also um, a sense that not being ritually significant didn't mean that you were any less meaningful or worthy of love. And that's a point that, again, I want to push because I think that um, distinguishes this form of uh, nativist distinction, if you will, from the Hindu, uh, from the Hindu rights distinction between indigenous cow as good and foreign cow as inherently bad. Um, to your second question about how this um, is, how this question of intimacy with animals is mirrored in other religious traditions, I think that's absolutely the case um, within all kinds of religions. And also, I mean, I think that, you know, there's often the sense that, uh, that Hinduism is the source of ahimsa and that's certainly not true. It really comes from sort of Buddhist and Jain traditions and is then drawn into um, uh, to Brahminical religion as a kind of counter and response to Buddhism and Jainism. But um, there, there's been a lot of interesting writing about how um, Muslim butchers, for instance, are also thinking about what it means to kill a cow, uh, kill a, a butcher a cow in a way that is not cruel. Um, Shahid Tayyab is someone who's working on this. So I think those questions of ethics and how you can tie them to religious traditions come up across multiple religions. And they're certainly not unique to Hinduism. Thank you, that was very interesting. So yeah, that discussion of cows, kind of Pari versus Jersey, definitely relates a lot to kinship development. I suppose between like nationalities and ethnicities or sometimes lack thereof due to xenophobia, racism and other generally otherizing, otherizing tendencies uh, that separate the local from the outsider. So it's really interesting hearing you develop that um, with relation to human and non-human species. I also, I just have one final question before we conclude. So Professor Govindrajan, uh, you discuss kinship and the maintenance of relationships with animals as being gendered. Um, as you've mentioned several times throughout this podcast discussion, um, and I guess you also explain your points uh, through the discussion of women in the society of Kumaon uh, that have extended child rearing and motherly tendencies towards their animals, even at times to the extent that their human children resent this connection and devotion to non-human animals. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of give you the floor to elaborate on this um, on this topic and maybe I suppose just talk about how motherhood, femininity and gender morph into kinship building and non-human animal domesticated species. Thank you, Renee. Um, I, I think that's a really wonderful question and it speaks to one of my essential concerns in the book, which is to think about how the question of gender emerges in human animal relationships in a way that doesn't end up naturalizing the connection between um, women and nature, which, as I've said before, um, is a huge part of the kind of some of the eco-feminist literature. Um, and what I was interested in understanding is how we might think about kinship as made through and as done 
through structures of labor. So one thing I was struck by when I first started doing research in Kumau was how much work for animals, for domestic animals was done by women and how much the language of kinship then came from them, but also how resistant they were to the naturalizing of that kinship. You know, when in talking about why they felt a relationship of maternal love of mamta for their animals, they would often foreground their labor and they would talk about how well, of course, I feel mamta. I've worked more for this animal than I have for my own children. And this was a discourse that was uh, consistently something I encountered um, in, their, in the mountains. And I think that it was also a way for women to value and visualize what was otherwise invisibilized labor. So one of the things I write about in the book is how much labor raising animals involves. So this is um, a mountainous area and women would often have to trudge up and down the mountain with huge loads of fodder, um, of bedding for their animals. They would take their animals out to graze every day. They would um, have to clean out cow sheds and then again, find, you know, throw the, the, that cow dung, that fertilizer uh, across a variety of fields that are sort of layered alongside the mountain. So it was a lot of grueling work. Um, and that work was often naturalized by men there, that this is women's work. This is what women do. They do this out of choice because they're mad about animals. And I think a lot of women would try and critique that naturalization of their labor by then pointing to how they felt kinship for their animals because they labored for them, not because it was natural, but because uh, they spent so much time with them. And I write about this in the chapter on sacrifice and also in the opening of the book, you. Um, in the question you sent me, you'd mentioned Munni and Mina Rekwal, and this uh, is the, the the vignette with which I opened the book. It was September 2010, and there had been a really heavy monsoon, and I was accompanying an NGO worker out to these villages that had been impacted by the monsoon. And we met a woman who refused to move from her destroyed house because she wanted to be near her animals. And she kept talking about how her cow had become sick uh, when she left for a night and that she couldn't leave her cow. And the NGO worker kept saying, you're crazy, you're staying in this house. You know, the, the back of it is completely destroyed by a landslide. The front could be destroyed as well. Um, and you just, you should just move to a safe place. Your animals will be fine. And she insisted that they were part of one family and that they had to face this together. And that was, that insistence again, was rooted in the labor that she had performed for these cows. There was a strong sense that their kin relationship emerged because the animals themselves recognized that she labored for them. Um, so it was also for these women, a really deep sense that the kinship was not something to, that they felt solely, but that animals reciprocated because they too recognized who was laboring for them. And I think that was a really important way for them to, to assert the centrality of gendered labor to rural economies. And um, so I'm following here the work of a generation of feminist scholars who pointed to the ways in which the, the ideas of care often exclude how much labor care takes and that there's a way in which care is romanticized as something that is spontaneous, as something that is natural, as something that is, um, that is a natural part of these relationships. And I'm interested again in thinking about care labor specifically and how that was um, the grounds of kinship in these spaces. Wow, thank you so much for that answer. Um, and thank you so much, Professor Govind Jajan for joining us today and discussing your very interesting and eye-opening research. 
Um, so for those of our listeners who are interested, you can find a link to Professor Govindrajan's book below this podcast at our Appraising Risk website. I'd also just like to thank Philip Gooding and Archisman Chowdhury for their questions. And also a thank you to Akash for joining us as a guest co-host today and for his very interesting question as well. Um, and finally, last but not least, thank you to you, our listeners, for downloading. Once again, my name is Renee Vanderville, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project, Appraising Risk, Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.